Well, thank you, Kyle. Great truths to sing. It's always a joy to sing God's praises with God's people and now to open God's Word. As you may know, uh, Carrie and Pam are in Rome, Italy right now, ministering to the saints and the leaders and the pastors there. Uh, Johnny Gravino, one of our missionaries that we support, works with the Italian Theological Academy, uh, has put on conference for pastors in the area, and so you could pray for Carrie and Pam as they minister together in that context, and uh, I think they've already had their services this morning, um, but yet there's much more that they have left to do, I'm sure, including, I guess, as Carrie joked last time, seeking an audience with the Pope, so... <laughs> You could pray for that meeting. I don't think it'll happen. Nevertheless, for us, I invite you to take your Bibles and join me in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, I know we've been for the past two Sundays since we finished the Gospel of John in 2 Corinthians. This morning we're going backwards, in fact, all the way back, not just to the first letter, but also to the very first words in that letter. And just to clarify, we're not not starting a full exposition of this uh, on Sunday mornings. I've chosen this because on Friday evenings, um, our young adult ministry is going through 1 Corinthians, but I I do believe Carrie is still planning on 1 Thessalonians, so do not be disappointed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're there, follow along with me as I read our text, verses 1 through 9. Paul opens the letter this way. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, I've entitled this morning's message, Ecclesiology 101. Ecclesiology 101. If you were a student in school and you were enrolled in a class with a code 101 at the end of it, perhaps you know and you're familiar with this, you, you would expect that this wouldn't be an advanced course, an upper-level class. No, this would be an introductory-level course, one that would be more focused on giving you the basics at the most foundational level, rudimentary things about the subject you're about to study, and your professors, no doubt, would not expect you 
In fact, they would very much assume that you knew very little, if not anything or nothing, about the subject matter at hand. Well, this morning, we're, we're all going to go back to school with the Corinthians on the subject of the church. The church, that is what ecclesiology refers to. It is the study of the church. And if you know anything about the church there in Corinth, we heard a little bit about it the past two weeks from Carrie. It was indeed in great need. It was a church that was in great need of some remedial lessons, some basic reminders from the Apostle Paul about how to just be a New Testament church. It's really no exaggeration. You could say that that of all the New Testament churches that we find in Scripture, the church at Corinth was probably Paul's most difficult congregation. It's full of all kinds of issues. Just read through this letter and you would find that out. I'll just give you a short list. Just literally walking through it, you'll encounter some of these problems that arose in Corinth. For instance, they, they had a tendency to elevate celebrity personalities in leadership. They were divided and constantly quarreling, full of disunity. They were tempted by pragmatism in their ministry, whatever worked. They struggled with impurity, with immorality, with sensuality. They failed to exercise church discipline. They were taking each other to court over petty offenses. They were abusing Christian liberties at the expense of each other. They were, they were even con- confused about the roles of men and women in the church. That's not new today. They were abusing the Lord's table. They were obsessed with their own display of spirituality and giftedness. They were even questioning the historicity of core doctrines of the gospel like the resurrection. Read chapter 15. And on top of all of that, they were greedy and materialistic, which hindered them from giving generously. And we are talking about the church in Corinth. And yet, beloved, I, I think as you listen to that list, all of us would admit we could just as easily be talking about the church in America today. So this morning, let us too go back for a refresher to Ecclesiology 101 with Professor Paul. This morning, I want to draw out for us from the beginning of this letter really three basic lessons or reminders about the church. Three basic lessons or reminders about the church that Paul will just slip into his introduction to this letter. And for the sake of time, I'll just give them to you as we go. But notice the first, and it comes to us in verse 1. The first reminder is this. It is a reminder about the church's authority. A reminder about the church's authority. Look at verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Here, Paul is reminding us that authority in the church is, first, listen, it's given by God. 
It comes from him, but then it's also given to qualified men who speak on his behalf. You notice that? How, how am I getting that? Well, it's Paul's identification of himself makes this clear. Notice how he describes himself here. He, notice what he doesn't say, right? He, he could have simply said this, as he does elsewhere, Paul, comma, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and just left it at that period. But, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, think about this, in light of the current situation at Corinth, writing to a church that was actually challenging his authority, questioning his teaching, doubting his ministry, a church in which other men even were creeping in and posing as apostles with authority, seeking to discredit Paul's influence with the, Corinth, with the Corinthians, Paul doesn't here just state his credentials. He also tells them how and where he got them from. Do you notice? He deliberately says that he is called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And those, beloved, are not words we should gloss over. They're really important. We can't skip over them. They're inspired by the Spirit, and the Spirit doesn't waste any ink. You see, Paul is reminding the Corinthians here that he was not a self-made minister. That's his whole point. Paul was saying to them, listen, I'm, I was not a self-appointed apostle. I didn't grab this authority of my own volition and my own will for my own gain. He was called to be an apostle by the sovereign purpose and pleasure of Almighty God who gave to him this ministry and authority. Listen, that's, that's what called here means. It doesn't mean what we sometimes mean when we meet someone for the first time and say, hey, just call me Kevin. You can call me Kevin. Now, this is a technical term in the New Testament, the same term often used to speak of the effectual call of God unto salvation, right? When God irresistibly draws the sinner to himself and saves him, gives him a new heart, gives him ears to hear, eyes to see. This is that kind of call. You see, contrary to what some of the even false teachers that have crept into Corinth were perhaps saying about Paul, Paul did not grab this for himself. He didn't choose this path. His commission as an apostle and therefore his authority was God's doing. It was God's will. It wasn't the result of his years of climbing the apostolic corporate ladder. It's not how it happened, right? Just read Acts chapter 9. Make that your homework. Just go and read how Paul was called by God. His calling came while he was on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians. And here he is then therefore reminding the Corinthians that, look, if they were going to question his authority as an apostle, they would have to take it up with God himself. 
And this is similar to what he does elsewhere, Galatians especially, chapter 1, verse 1. It's not the first time he introduces himself this way. Listen to what he says there in a church where he was also being challenged and his authority was being questioned. He says there, Paul, an apostle, and it's even clearer uh, what he's doing there. He says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. It's the same issue here. His point is the same. Now, before we accuse Paul of pride, (coughs) before we say, (coughs) imagine that he's just tooting his own horn or trying to pat his resume and, 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 and tell the Corinthians, hey, I'm someone worth listening to. Listen to what he'll say later on, even in this very letter, chapter 15. You can just write it down, but just listen, 8 through 11. He'll say there, you remember, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he that is Jesus appeared to me also. You remember the words he says following that, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That was Paul's perspective. But, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. That is how Paul received his ministry and this authority. See, like all the men whom God was ever pleased to use in the New Testament Paul did not grab for this power, this authority, this position. He was simply submitting himself to God's ultimate authority as a messenger of Jesus Christ, which is really what the word apostle means. In the most basic sense, it just means sent one, one who is sent. Paul had no personal authority wrapped up in it. His authority came from the message that was entrusted to him by God, the God who commissioned him and sent him. Beloved, the same is true today. You need to be reminded of that. The same is true today. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Though we aren't apostles, granted that, but listen to the language. It's the same, Ephesians 4, and he, that is Christ, who has the authority, who is the head of the church, gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Listen, the the church's authority, let's be reminded in this first lesson, comes ultimately from God first in His Word spoken through human instruments to his people. That's that's the order. As your pastors and leaders and elders and teachers, I know every one of our elders here would agree with this. We do not hold any personal authority over you. Our opinion matters very little. And in fact, Paul will go on to write two chapters later, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? We could add, what is Kevin? What is John? What is Jeff? What is Carrie? What is Danny? Servants through whom you believed, and then this, even as the Lord gave to each one. 
Beloved, authority in the church comes from God. You know what that means? Here's the implication for us this morning then. We need to be careful, don't we, of making much of men in the church? That is a temptation. Look, I, I believe we, we're, we're in a culture that is so much like Corinth, where, where it is a very real temptation to ascribe personal authority to our favorite pastors, to, to our favorite celebrity preachers. Are, are you vulnerable to that? I am. But we need to be reminded here this morning, Ecclesiology 101, with the Corinthians that authority in the church belongs ultimately to Christ in his word. And therefore, we submit to qualified men who are resolved by their calling to speak this very word. This is Paul's first lesson and a reminder to us about the church's authority. But second notice, there's a second lesson here. Paul gives us a reminder about the church's identity. A reminder about the church's identity. Now, I wonder if I were to give a quiz in this class this morning, and I were to ask you how, how many of you could give me a clear and succinct and basic definition of the church. In other words, what is the church at its very core? Now, that's a very different question than asking, what does the church do? It's, it's also a very, it's a very different question than asking the question, what should a church do? And what should it look like? But what it is, the question is, more precisely, what is the church in its very essence? What makes it the church? Could you answer that? Well, Paul helps us. He gives us the answer. Verse 2, notice. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who at every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, the first thing we notice here about the church's identity is that the church belongs to God. The church belongs to God. That is her identity. She is his possession because he purchased her with his very own blood, Acts 20, 28. Listen, the church doesn't belong to its members. The church doesn't belong to the senior pastor or even the leadership of the elders. The church is Christ's possession. Notice again, Paul, Paul could have, again, notice what he could have said. He could have addressed this church as the church of Corinth. But he doesn't do that here. Does he do that? No. Instead, what does he say? He writes more precisely, the church of God, which happens to meet at Corinth. Isn't that interesting? It's very precise language, isn't it? Listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to jump all over you next time you say my church. I understand what you mean when you say that. You simply mean this is the church that I go to and I attend. You're not making a claim that you own Twin City Bible Church. I understand that. But nevertheless, there's a theological point to be had here, isn't there? 
that Paul would say it this way because he wants to remind us that the church, while it happens to gather in a specific location, in fact, in many places, not just here, that, that she nevertheless belongs to God, that she is his bride, she is his body. Christian, do you need to be reminded of that this morning? That, that the church does not exist for you to serve you and that we can't just do whatever we want with God's bride and body? Look, in fact, later in chapter 6, this, this is exactly where Paul will go in his warning to the Corinthians against the sin of immorality. He'll ask there that very pointed question, do you not know that your body, the church, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is among you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you've been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God among your members, among your body. Listen, let us not, let's not miss the corporate element in that passage. This is why, friends, sin cannot be tolerated in the assembly because the church belongs to God because of who the church is. At its very core, that's part of her identity. We are God's possession. But second thing we notice about the church's identity here is that the church is a people and not a place. The church is a people. It's not a place. You might say, I know that. Well, let me remind you, this is 101. The church is a people, it's not a place. You see, while Paul is addressing this letter to the church, which does indeed gather in a specific location at Corinth, nevertheless, he goes on to clarify in the rest of verse 2 that he's writing to people, not the building they meet in. But he's writing to, notice, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus who are saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He's writing to people. Well, the church is not a building. The church is not even, it's not a non-profit entity organization. The church is a people. In other words, whatever the Lord allows us to build back here, that we've been talking about, if we finish that, the Lord has not, grown our church. Do we understand that? He's given us a bigger building, but he's not necessarily grown our church because the church is not a place. It's a people. And notice, it's not even necessarily people who happen to gather in a specific place either. That's not how they get their identity. Because we might wrongly think, well, okay, it's the people, but it's the people who come here. And while I'm not devaluing, I don't think Paul is devaluing at all the local gathering of God's people, nevertheless, let's be precise. It's not the location, listen, that defines them. That is not their identity. We've learned that in 2020, haven't we? In other words, how does he make that point? Notice Paul says here it's 
in every place. That there are actually church people everywhere, Paul says. So it's not their specific location that defines them as belonging to God, then what is it? What kind of people? Well, notice how Paul describes them. The church is a people who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. The church is a people who are saints by calling. The church is a people who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, all those things say the same thing, and that is the church is made up of Christians. All of those phrases are really just different ways of saying like the church is made up of true believers who have actually come to saving faith in Christ, who've been set apart uniquely by God for himself. That's all that sanctified means. Who have been placed by God and not anything that they've done in and of themselves They've been placed in real union and communion and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point here. In fact, the phrase, those who call on the name of the Lord, is a reference. You can just look it up later to Joel 2.32, which reads this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's talking about genuine conversion. Dear friend, the church is the company of the redeemed. It's a saved people. That's our identity. The church is a people who've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, whose sins have been entirely forgiven, and who've been declared holy by God Himself because, not because they do this and they do that and they show up here, <laughs> but because they're in Christ. By the way, you just marvel, don't you, at the fact that Paul says this of this church, these people. You know, we, we, read, we read of all that they struggled with earlier, didn't we? Can, can you imagine that? Just think about that. Paul says this of that church. Beloved, if you struggle with that this morning, then maybe you need to be reminded that the church's identity, listen, it's not the same thing as what the church should do or how the church should act. Look, Paul is going to go on in the rest of this letter, you just read it, to confront them very pointedly for all the horrendous things that they need to change. It's not an excuse by Paul to say, hey, that's not right, the church wouldn't do that. Do something different. But let's be reminded this morning, when we come to speak of what is at the core of our identity, what makes us the church, what defines us as the people who belong to God, it's not what we have done. But what God has done in Christ to call us and to set us apart for himself. You need to be reminded of that this morning. Well, the church is not a place, it's a people who belong to God, who've been put in a saving relationship with Jesus. You know what this means? Some more implications here. This means, this means that you can come regularly, every Sunday, every Wednesday night, you can come to a church building and not actually 
be the church. You, you, could, you could be sitting inside the church meeting place, like you are now, do, doing what the church does and not actually be identified with her as the church because you're not in Christ. You're just in a building. It's not the same thing. Listen, beloved, the church is not a social club. It's not a political movement. It's not even a group of conservative people who really like to be around each other. And and I hope you do. The church consists of those who've cried out to God for salvation. And he has answered them and become their Lord and ours. This is the identity of the church and the same is true today. The same is true today. So we learn about the church's authority. We learn about the church's identity. Lastly, notice from Paul's Thanksgiving in verses 4 through 9, he's going to give us a reminder and a lesson of the church's sufficiency. It's sufficiency. Notice verses 4 through 9, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you're not lacking any gift. That's the language of sufficiency. Uh, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that's a mouthful. It's all one long sentence, actually, if you can believe it in the original text. And even in English, it can be easy to lose sight of Paul's main point here. So let me just summarize it for you. It's very simple. The main idea is simply this. It can be found in verses 4 and 5. That Paul is thankful that God's grace in Christ is sufficient for the church. That's all that he needs. You notice? Notice verses 4 and 5. The reason, the explicitly stated reason for Paul's thanksgiving, it is for the grace of God given you in Christ Jesus. (laughs) That in everything you were enriched in him, there's the sufficiency part. And that, beloved, in a nutshell, is the church's sufficiency. Paul reminds us here in his thanksgiving that the church finds all of its sufficiency in the grace of God which is given in Christ Jesus. And you might say, I I know that. (laughs) But we need to be reminded of it. Christian, aren't you thankful for that though? Aren't you thankful that we aren't sufficient because of how much money we have in our annual budget? Aren't you thankful that we aren't sufficient because of all the programs that are listed in the bulletin? Aren't you thankful for that? No, in Christ Jesus, in connection with him, we we have everything we need. Christian, you have everything you need in him. This is how Paul is able to give thanks to God even for such a church like Corinth. 
even for such a church that struggled as much as she did. God's grace in Christ is our sufficiency. And by the way, did you notice how many times Christ Jesus is mentioned in this opening section? Maybe you were latching on to that as we were reading it. You could go back and count it later, but just trust me, nine times in nine verses, Paul puts our eyes on him in whom we have our sufficiency, in him in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and in him in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, in him you've been made complete. Church, we're not sufficient in ourselves, but by God's grace, we are sufficient in connection with Jesus Christ our Lord. And the rest of this passage simply elaborates on this sufficiency in more detail. Specifically, notice Paul says that God's grace is in Christ is sufficient first for service in this life, verses 5 through 7, service in this life, and then secondly, it's sufficient for salvation in the next life, verses 8 through 10. So sufficient for service in this life, and then sufficient for salvation in the next. Notice, first, his grace is sufficient, Paul says, for service in this life, verses 5 through 7. Paul says that in everything you were enriched in him, specifically in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know Paul is here talking about Sufficient grace for this life. Well, notice what he says in verse 7. Because he says we're not lacking in God's grace while we do what? While we wait. While we wait eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is this life. Before Christ returns. In other words, even... Paul is saying this, even before Christ comes back, even before you're glorified with him, Paul says, in this fallen existence, you have everything you need. You're not missing anything. God's grace is sufficient for you now as you wait. Do you believe that this morning, Christian? Do you believe that God has provided everything you need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3? Do you believe that in Christ He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1, verse 3? My friend, God has not been stingy with you. If you're in Christ, you have it all. You lack nothing. For the Christian life, you lack nothing for usefulness. You lack nothing for service that is effective unto God's glory. Now, some of you might hear that and say, yeah, but if, if only I was more gifted. If only I could preach like John MacArthur. Man, if I could do announcements like Danny Gumprecht, book recommendations, if I could, if I had the intellect of Sinclair Ferguson, the accent of Ian Hamilton, man, then I would be useful. I wouldn't struggle as much if I had those things. But my friend, look at what Paul says here. Corinth had all the spiritual gifts you could think of. They had the total package. Look at verse 7. 
He says they're not lacking in anything, in any gift for ministry, even specifically, because verse 5 says, in all speech and all knowledge, and yet, what do we know about the church in Corinth? We've said it already. They struggled massively. They, They struggled, in light of all of that, to grow and to mature, and they proved to be one of Paul's most problematic churches, and so do not believe for a second, Christian, that, man, if only we had that in our church, that things would be better. Don't believe the lie for one second that you struggle to be useful because God is withholding his resources from you. He's not. Now, now at this point, someone might ask, okay, so I, I believe that. We are going to be given. We're given sufficient grace for this life, but when do we get it? When do we get it? Because I, so I know I'm, I'm forgiven, but man, it does not feel like I have everything I need for all that I face today. When does that come? Is, when's the second blessing? When do I hit that level, right? When do I get promoted? When, when can I hit the next tier of Christian power? How do I unlock that right there? Okay, so you're telling me it comes in this life before glorification. How do I get that? Well, notice verse 6, Paul says, it's not how it works. Actually, you, you already have it. You were given it at your conversion. The language he uses here is whenever the testimony, look, even as the testimony of, about Christ was established in you. Listen, that's when you got it. You got, you got to follow me here on this. The testimony of Christ simply refers to the, sal- the, the saving gospel message. And so Paul says here, this, this message of the gospel was Notice the verb here. It was confirmed. It was established in the Corinthians, in you. It's just another way of saying, look, you were saved when you received this message about Jesus. You were saved when you received this message about Christ. And so notice the connection here between that moment of salvation, when the gospel was established in you, and the giving of all of God's grace gifts. The connection is Paul's conjunction here, even as, verse 6. Paul's making a comparison between those two. In other words, beloved, just as, or in the same way that you were saved, you were also given all the gifts. And so we have to ask, how were you saved? Were you saved in increments? Is it like, are you more saved today than you were yesterday? Is that how it works? A little here, a little there. No, when you believed, when, you, when the gospel message took root in your heart in that moment, all at once, God poured it out on you. He lavished his saving grace upon you, and you're no more saved today than you were yesterday. Therefore, dear church, the same is true of his gifts. The same is true of what makes you useful in the Christian life, this side of heaven, as you wait the return of your king. God's grace is in Christ fully sufficient for service in this life, but very quickly, 
Not only that, Paul ends this section by reminding us also that God's grace is sufficient for salvation in the next life. Notice verse 8, he will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Christian, do you need to be reminded of this today? You ever wonder if his grace is really sufficient to cover all of your sin when you come to judgment, when you stand before him in that last day? Will, will I be covered? Paul says it is. If you are the church, be reminded this morning that God's grace is sufficient to get you to your final destination. To put it another way, he will have his bride. And just as he confirmed, just as he established the gospel message in you at your conversion, look, the same verb is used here as we just saw in verse 6. Just as he did that, he promises by his sufficient grace to confirm and establish you in the end. Oh, what a thought. It's a guarantee. Look, one day, Christian, you will stand. You will stand. Before your creator. And if if you're in Christ. You will be blameless. You'll be without stain. You'll be without guilt. You'll be without fear. And Christ will. According to Ephesians 5.27. Present to himself the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle. Or any such thing. Man what a comfort. You say, how can that be? You, you don't know how I've sinned. Pastor, you, you could have no idea. How, how could that be for the Corinthians? Because of verse 9, notice, because it has very little to do with you. But God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. But the grace of God is sufficient for the church's salvation, not only in this life to make you useful for all that God has called you to be as the church, but also to bring you to the end in salvation and fellowship with his Son. So three reminders, three lessons about the church this morning, a reminder about the church's authority, about the church's identity, and the church's sufficiency. We could put it this way, as the church, listen, we bow to God and to his word as our authority. As the church, we belong to God as his special and redeemed people as our identity, and as the church, we depend on God and his grace for our sufficiency. May that be true of us, Twin City Bible Church. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for a passage like this. We're reminded of such truth that we need to carry about with us in our hearts. And we thank you that Jesus is sufficient, that it is his work, that it is your calling 
that has secured our position and our identity with you, our fellowship, our salvation. Father, we're so grateful for this. Lord, if there's anyone in here who's come to this building, a church building their entire life, but have, because of this, this morning realized, but yet I'm not the church. I'm not a child of God. Would you save them? Would you show them their need? Would you drive them to yourself so that they might call with us upon the name of the Lord and be saved? We pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.